Grieve Not the Holy Spirit. That's both the text and the title for Sermon 738 in the Metropolitan Tabernacle pulpit as we continue to work through sermons from the heart of Spurgeon, exalting the triune God, glorifying Christ, and here calling upon us to sustain a proper relationship to the Holy Spirit of God. The sermon was preached from Ephesians 4 verse 30 on the Lord's Day morning of the 3rd of March 1867 at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, says the scripture, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. This week, as we continue to work through these sermons, we've got to 738 through to 744. This is our featured sermon, and it begins, as several of Spurgeon's do, with quite a brief introduction. Sometimes it's just a few words. Sometimes, as on this occasion, it's a a brief paragraph. Other times it's more developed. Another singularity about this, uh, much rarer than the uh, slightly shorter introduction, is that Spurgeon doesn't announce the outline or the skeleton of his sermon, but rather launches into it and it develops as it goes. And you're kind of building up the layers of intensity and the, the levels of uh, impact as you listen. He begins by saying, it is a very clear proof of the personality of the Holy Spirit that he can be grieved. Now, it would be very difficult to imagine an influence or a mere spiritual emanation being grieved. We can only grieve a person, and inasmuch as the Holy Ghost may be grieved, we see that he is a distinct subsistence in the sacred trinity. So the first point that he makes is this uh, properly theological one, that the God of the scriptures is a triune God and that the Holy Spirit is not a force or an influence or an emanation, but truly a person or subsistence. Those words mean in Trinitarian speech essentially the same thing. Therefore, we are to uh, do, do him homage as divine. Also, the, the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed unto the day of redemption, emphasizes the close connection or relationship between the Spirit and the believer. And then this word grieve is a painful one, but it's an inexpressibly delightful thought that he who rules heaven and earth and is the creator of all things and the infinite and ever-blessed God condescends to enter into such infinite relationships with his people that his divine mind may be affected by their actions. Now, uh, Spurgeon is not uh, writing into or addressing more modern controversies about the, uh, the being of God, the nature of God as a God without passions. He subscribes to the orthodox doctrine uh, that God is without body, parts or passions that he is still a God who manifests holy affections and that in himself he is unchanging and unchangeable. Nevertheless, he's going to give full weight to the testimony of the scripture that the spirit of God may be grieved. I think we, we might carefully say that our experience of the operations and disposition of God, in this case God the Holy Spirit, is going to change depending on our behavior, our convictions and actions. The change is not in God himself, but in our experience of the Lord. At the same time, we, we need to make 
make sure that we appreciate that the the things that we think that we feel and that we do have in that sense an impact upon God and our relationship to him. Spurgeon tries to capture something of the the tension of that, the, the mystery of that in his first point, which is the astounding fact that the Holy Spirit may be grieved. That loving, tender spirit who of his own accord has taken upon himself to quicken us from our death in sin and to be the educator of the new life which he has implanted within us, that divine instructor, illuminator, comforter, remembrancer, whom Jesus has sent forth to be our abiding guide and teacher, may be grieved. He whose divine energy is life to our souls, due to our graces, light to our understandings and comfort to our hearts, may be vexed by us. The heavenly dove may be disturbed, the celestial fire may be damped, the divine wind may be resisted, the blessed paraclete may be treated with despite. It's it's a stunning declaration. I think it's true to the scriptures. The reason why that the, the Holy Spirit can be grieved, the, the loving grief of the Holy Ghost, as Spurgeon describes it, may be traced to his holy character and perfect attributes. It is the very nature of a holy being to be vexed with unholiness. The spirit would not be the spirit of truth if he could approve of that which is false in us. He would not be pure if that which is impure in us did not grieve him. The proper response of the perfectly pure and holy is to be grieved, to be repulsed by that which is unholy and impure. And the Spirit is grieved for various reasons. Grieved for our own sakes, first of all, then for Jesus' sake, then for the church's sake, then for sinners' sake. He grieves for our own sakes because he knows what misery sin will cost us. He is, as it were, distressed on our behalf. We might have been upon the mountain of fellowship, but we're sighing in the dungeon of despondency, and all because from motives of fleshy ease, we preferred to go down bypath meadow and forsake the right way because it was rough. So often you see Christians who will take the easy route out of a situation rather than the righteous route. And the, the effect of it is that the, the things actually get harder, more painful, more distressing. Maybe not immediately, but eventually. There's compromise. There's undermining. There's a, a distance from God that results. It is for the sake then of God's people, uh, for the sake of those in whom he dwells, that the spirit is troubled. Then he is grieved for Jesus Christ's sake. We are Christ's purchase. We ought to glorify Christ in these mortal bodies. It should be the one end and object of our desire to crown that head with gems which once was crowned with thorns. It is lamentable that we should so frequently fail in this reasonable service. So if Christ deserves our best, if his wounds claim us, every pang he bore and every groan that escaped his lips is a fresh reason for perfect holiness and complete devotion, how could the Holy Spirit not be grieved if we dishonour the Christ who bought us? Then more, for the church's sake. How useful some of us might be if we just lived up to our privileges. Ah, my brothers, says Spurgeon, how the comforter must surely grieve over those of us who are ministers when he sets us as watchmen and we do not watch and the church is invaded. 
when we don't have that tenderness of heart, that melting of love, that vehemence of zeal, that earnestness of soul which we ought to exhibit. And so the church of God suffers damage through our carelessness or our foolishness or our lovelessness. And the spirit who loves the church is therefore grieved when he sees her robbed and despoiled, her children wandering, her wounded ones unsuccored, and her broken hearts unhealed. And that's not just true for ministers, but all members, for each has what Spurgeon calls a niche that you should fill. If that is vacant, if you do not fill the space that God has given to you in the church, then the church loses by you. The kingdom of Christ suffers damage. The revenue which ought to come to Zion is cut short and the Holy Ghost is grieved. Your lack of prayer then, your want of love, your deficiency in generosity, all these may be sad injuries to the church of God and therefore is the loving spirit of God much disquieted. But then... The Spirit of God is mourning over the shortcomings of Christians for sinners' sake. It is the office of the Holy Ghost to convince the world of sin, of righteousness and of judgment. And when believers' lives run counter to that work of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is grieved. So Spurgeon asks to think, us to think how much of the ruin of the world must be laid at the door of the church. He says, I can barely, barely contemplate it. But I will dare to say this, that although the divine purposes will be fulfilled and God will not miss of the number of his chosen, yet the fact that this London of ours is now rather a heathen than a Christian city can be laid at no one's door but that of the professing church of God and her ministers. He's, he's asking really, can, can we claim that the problem with the world lies not at all with the church of Jesus Christ? that it could be our failure in making Christ known in a compelling and a coherent way that, that is the, one of the reasons why the world is so little impacted by the gospel. There's ability enough among us, he says, if it were but given to the ministry of the word to yield a sufficiency of preachers of the cross. We have all the pecuniary, that is the financial and mental strength that is wanted. The point, though, in which we fail is this. We are straightened in power, that is, we are held back or limited in spiritual power, poverty-stricken in grace, lukewarm in zeal, meagre in devotedness, staggering in faith. We are not straightened in our God, we are straightened in our own bowels. That is, we're not limited in God, but we are limited in our own compassions and mercies. And the Spirit of God is then greatly grieved with many churches for the sake of the sinners in their congregations who are scarcely cared for, seldom prayed for, never wept for. It's a, a, a fearful prospect, is it not, that these things so grieve the Holy Ghost. Spurgeon moves on, though, quite rapidly to refer to the deplorable causes which produce this grief of the Holy Spirit. And again here, he's, he's peeling back the layers. He's exposing our souls. He wants us to come face to face with this reality. He tells us that the context helps. We learn that sins of the flesh, filthiness and evil speaking of every sort are grievous to the Holy Ghost. Let a Christian fall into the habit of talking in a loose, unchaste style. Let him delight in things that are indecorous, even if he shall not plunge into the commission of outward uncleanness, and the Spirit of God will not be pleased with him. 
So foolish and ugly and coarse jokes, dirty speech, foul language, uh, vile talking. These are the things that distress the Holy Spirit. He moves on to the 31st verse. The Holy Ghost is grieved by any approach to bitterness, wrath, anger, clamour, evil speaking and malice. If in a Christian church there shall be dissensions and divisions, if brother shall speak evil of brother and sister of sister, love is absent and the spirit of love will not long be present. It's, it's worth noting, isn't it, that, uh, that the very names that we use of the Holy Ghost, the spirit of love, the spirit of peace, the spirit of truth, the spirit of grace, that the, the things which militate against his ministry, the things that are opposite to and which counter his intentions and operations, those are the very things that grieve him. He picks up this bitterness. My dear friends, I hope as a church, if there be any secret ill feeling among us, any hidden root of bitterness, even though it may not yet have sprung up to trouble us, it may be removed and destroyed at once. I do not know of any such abominable thing, and I'm happy to be able to say so, as would any preacher be. I trust we walk together in holy unity and concord of heart, and if any of you be conscious of bitterness, in ever so small a measure, purge it out, lest the Spirit of God be grieved with you and grieved with the Church of God for your sake. And I would say from bitter experience, without any pun intended, that there's almost nothing that I know of more than this, that grieves the Holy Spirit. When there's this kind of antagonism, this kind of arrogance, this kind of anger in the church of Jesus Christ, when there are people who are opposed to one another, people who are opposed to the ministry, people who are sniping and, and striving against one another, you can almost feel the Holy Spirit, it's the Holy Spirit's absence. It's, it's the most distressing thing and it's a fearful prospect to be contributing to such a grief in the heart of God. He goes on, I, I have no doubt it greatly grieves the spirit to see in believers any degree of love of the world, this worldliness. The Holy Spirit gives to us believers celestial joys and abounding comforts, and if he sees us turn our back upon all these to go into worldly company, to feed greedily upon the same empty joys which satisfy worldlings, he is a jealous God, and he takes it as a great slight put upon himself. God spreads the table. God gives us all the happinesses we could want, and we seek them elsewhere. We go and indulge our own appetites for the world. He says that worldliness in any shape must be very grievous to the Spirit of God, not only the love of pleasure, but the love of gain. Worldliness in Christian men and women in imitating the world in dress. Worldliness in luxury or in conversation must displease the Spirit of God because he calls us a peculiar or distinctive people. He tells us to come out from among them and be separated and touch not the unclean thing. And then he promises, I will be a father unto you and you shall be my sons and daughters. But if we will not separate, how can we expect him to be otherwise than grieved? How can we enjoy the, the fatherhood of God if we're not truly acting as his children? And so the Spirit of God is greatly grieved by unbelief. Now again, he's the Spirit of truth. What does it do if a child suspects his father of not being truthful? It grieves him. 
How can it not grieve the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, if we doubt the God of truth and the truth of God? God forgive our unbelief, says Spurgeon. What about our ingratitude? When Jesus reveals his love to us, if we go away from the chamber of fellowship to talk lightly and forget that love, or if when we've been raised up from a sickbed we are no more consecrated than before, or if when our bread is given us and our water is sure, our heart never thanks the bounteous giver, or if when preserved under temptation we fail to magnify the Lord, surely this in each case must be a God-provoking sin. Have you ever thought to give God thanks when, having been tempted, you have not fallen into sin? Do you pray regularly with thanksgiving, with gratitude for the food and drink that he bestows upon you? Have you been spared and do you yet live as if nothing has changed? These things ought to move us, says Spurgeon, and a failure to be so moved is dishonouring to the Holy Ghost. If we add pride to our ingratitude, we sorely grieve the blessed spirit. When a saved sinner grows proud, he insults the wisdom of the Spirit of God by his folly. For what can there be in us to be proud of? If we're proud of the very graces that the Holy Spirit has given to us, proud of what when that's in us, or, or proud even more so when it becomes the fault of an entire church, if we begin to boast that we're numerous or generous or rich, it will be all up with us. God will abase those who exalt themselves. Spurgeon is drawing really toward his, his conclusion of this point. He says, I can't give you a full list of all the evils, but I want to mention one particularly, a want of prayer or a lack of prayer. Does this not touch some of you, he asks? And we groan and say, yes, yes, it does. How little do some of us pray? Let each conscience now be its own accuser and conscience twists the knife. My dear brother, how about the mercy seat? How about the closet and secret communion with God? How about wrestling for your children? How about pleading for the pastor? Have you not been backward in interceding for the conversion of your neighbour? Spurgeon says the prayerlessness of this age is one of its worst signs and the prayerlessness of some of our Christian churches looks as if God were about to withdraw himself from the land. For in many churches, as I am told, they have a difficulty in getting enough men to attend the prayer meetings to carry them on. I think, I think that's as much a problem today as it, as it has been in Spurgeon's day, perhaps even more so. He says, I, I know of some, tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. I know of some churches that have given up the prayer meetings because nobody comes. Ah, if this case were a solitary one, it ought to be daily mourned over. But there are scores of churches in a like condition. The Lord have mercy upon them and upon the land in which such churches dwell. What a grievous thing. My friends, are we in our place at the prayer meeting? That's where we call upon the living God. That's where we gain the grace, the power, the, the favour that we need, that our other labours may be fruitful. Prayerlessness is a tragic sign of a Christian church in decline, both in the, the appetite of individuals, in the gathering of the saints, how much we have to, to, to consider that we have distressed the Spirit of God by not relying on him and pleading uh, by his help with the God of heaven. So he sums things up. 
I think the Holy Spirit will be grieved with any one of us if we shall indulge any known sin, let it be what it may. And I will add to that, if any one of us shall neglect any known duty, let it be what it may. So Spurgeon says basically we need to know what we believe and we need to act in accordance with it. We need to make sure that we are not committing any sins of omission or sins of commission. It's the duty of all Christians to search the word as to what are the ordinances which God has fixed and commanded and being once clear as to the rule of the word, it is ours to obey it. As a, as a Baptist, uh, as a Protestant, Spurgeon is particularly concerned about uh, this baptismal regeneration, this Puseyism, this high church Anglicanism which was becoming so prevalent in his day. The idea that by sprinkling a baby, the baby actually becomes a Christian, that the, uh, the sprinkling of water somehow constitutes that child a, a lively member of the new covenant. And he says the present sad condition of the Christian church and the prevalence of this dogma of baptismal regeneration may be traceable to the neglect that reigns in the church almost universally with regard to the great Christian ordinance of believers' baptism. The church's supplanting the baptism of believers by that of infants was not only a great means in the original establishment of popery, but the maintenance of the perverted ordinance in our Protestant church is the chief root and cause of the present revival of popery in this land. Spurgeon says if, if you let that kind of error, that kind of danger into the church of Jesus Christ, the professing church, you're going to undermine the whole holy construct of the body of Christ. But make the church a body consisting only of professedly faithful men, believers in the Lord Jesus, and let the church say to all others, you have no part nor lot in this matter until you are converted, and there is an end of the unholy alliance between the church and the world, which is now a withering blight upon our land. So Spurgeon's calling us, really, to, to search the scriptures, to be convinced of what they teach us, and then to live accordingly. Now, you're entitled to come to the Scriptures and reach another conclusion, but it can't be mere tradition. It can't be uh, empty formalism. It has to be that we believe that God's Word speaks. And I say to you, he says, what I say to others, if the form of our church government, if the manner of our administration of Christian ordinances, if the doctrines we hold be unwarranted by the Word of God, let us be faithful to our consciences and to the word and be ready to alter according to our light. We, we need to follow God, follow his word, follow his spirit, or we cannot expect the spirit of God to abide with us. Then, thirdly, and very briefly, the lamentable result of the spirit's being grieved. So remember how he's moving on. The astounding fact the Holy Spirit may be grieved the deplorable causes for the grief of the Holy Ghost, and now the lamentable result of the Spirit's being grieved. And because he's, he's pressing on, I, I think here the structure is that he, he gives us sort of one overarching result and, and then a number of subsequent impacts. He says you will lose all sense of the Holy Spirit's presence. He will be as one hidden from you, no beams of comfort, no words of peace, no thoughts of love, what Cooper calls an aching void which the world can never fill. 
Now, if you're a true child of God, of course, you cannot lose the Holy Spirit absolutely. And Spurgeon is talking here specifically about the sense of the Holy Spirit's presence. He will, as it were, withdraw so that uh, he is not close to you in the way that you once enjoyed. And when you grieve then the Holy Spirit and he withdraws from you in that way, you will lose all Christian joy, all power, all assurance and all usefulness. The light shall be taken from you. The very means of grace which once was such a delight shall have no music in your ear. You will lose power when you pray, when you read, when you, when you preach, when you serve. Your assurance will be gone. Doubts will come in. Questionings and suspicions will be aroused. And when you grieve the Holy Ghost, usefulness will cease. The ministry shall yield no fruit. Your Sunday school work shall be barren. Your speaking to others and labouring for others' souls shall be like sowing the wind. What a fearful picture he paints. The blight upon the garden of God because the Holy Spirit is at a distance from us. Brothers beloved in the Lord, he says, may the Lord prevent us from grieving his spirit as a church. Do we feel the weight of that? But may we be earnest, zealous, truthful, united and holy so that we may retain among us this heavenly guest who will leave us if we grieve him. And now he closes with with what we really need at this point, a little bit of sweetness and, and some encouragement because this has been hard to receive. He wants us to to feel the force of a personal argument used in the text to forbid our grieving the Holy Ghost, by whom you are sealed unto the day of redemption. And he suggests that this sealing has various functions or, or uses. A seal attests to the authenticity and authority of that which is sealed. So by what means can I know that I am truly what I profess to be? How do I know if I'm really a Christian? Because God sets a seal on every genuine saint, and that is the possession of the Holy Spirit. If the Spirit of Christ is in us and is working in our souls, is, is his operations are manifest in our hearts, then it is plain that we are his children. But if we grieve the Holy Spirit, we, we lose the seal. We're like a, a letter, a note of hand without a signature. The evidence of being God's child is the Spirit. And so if we grieve the Holy Spirit, then we will lack assurance. If we don't have the Spirit at all, it's decisive evidence that we don't belong to Jesus Christ at all. Moreover, the seal is used for attestation. It, it demonstrates something. It declares something. You say to the world, I am a child of God. How do they know? By looking for the seal. If you possess the Spirit of God, they'll soon see you to be a Christian. If you live like a child of God, if you believe and behave, if you're convinced by uh, the truth and you're, you're committed to walking in God's ways. It's the, the demonstration. If you profess to be called to any form of ministry, your only way of proving your call will be by showing the seal of the Spirit. When that seal is affixed to your labours, when the Spirit of Christ manifestly works as a result of your working, in, in he blesses the work that you do, you will require no other recognition. So the only way for a Christian to be discerned to be a Christian or for a church to be manifested as a church of God is by having the Spirit of God and in the name of the Spirit of God doing exploits for God and bringing glory to his holy name. 
that seal also preserves. It's a, it's a, a guard. It's a set for security. And the only way by which you can be known to be a Christian is by really possessing the natural, supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. And so the only way you can be kept a Christian is by still possessing that same Holy Spirit. It's not enough just to temporarily taste. It's not enough just to sit occasionally. We need the Holy Ghost to take up residence in our hearts, not to pass us by and give us, as it were, a, a, a passing savour, but rather to, to give us that, uh, the savour of grace so that, so that our very souls become seasoned with the realities of his presence. The Holy Spirit then is not to you a luxury, but a necessity. You must have him or you die. You must have him or you are damned. I with a double damnation. Grieve not then, says Spurgeon, that spirit upon whom you are so dependent. He is your credentials as a Christian. He is your life as a believer. Prize him beyond all price. Speak of him with bowed head, with reverent awe. Rest upon him with childlike, loving confidence. Obey his faintest monitions, neglect not his inward whispers, turn not aside from his teachings in the word or by his ministers, and be as ready to feel his power as the waves of the sea are to be moved by the wind or a feather to be wafted by the gale. Hold yourselves ready to do his bidding. We need to be primed, prompted to respond to the, the operations of the Holy Spirit and the word of God that he brings to bear upon our souls. Do not willfully shut your eyes to an unpleasant duty. Do not close your understanding to an unwelcome truth. Lean not to your own understanding. Consider that the Holy Ghost alone can teach you and that those who will not be taught of him must remain hopelessly foolish. Spurgeon longs to see the church depend on no human strength, no creature aid, but to trust entirely to the Holy Ghost, even though her ministers should be lowly and despised. If we only obeyed the Spirit, if that were our great concern, how favoured we would be, what blessing we might know, what glory of God we would see in our midst. God send it and send it in our time, says Spurgeon, and his shall be the praise. He closes just with one brief plea to the unconverted. We can grieve the Holy Spirit because we know him. He is sealing us. But do not then quench the Spirit and resist the Spirit. Do not turn your back upon him. When the word of God comes to you, when you feel something of its influences, do not push back but rather bow the knee to the King of Kings, repent and believe, and come to Jesus Christ. It's far from the easiest sermon to hear, far from the easiest sermon to listen to. There are painful places here, but the pain is profitable. There's honey from out of the lion. If we take to heart the possibility, the reality of the grieving of the Holy Ghost, that Holy One, that pure and perfect third person of the Godhead and why and how he can be grieved and if we think about the the effect that it has and then we consider that if we are sealed by the Holy Spirit it is incumbent upon us by all means not to grieve and distress the God of our salvation. I hope there's value in that for you even if there's a 
a painful unpeeling of some of the layers of our souls. That was 738 in the Metropolitan Tabernacle pulpit. Next week, God willing, 745 to 751. And our featured sermon in that sequence is 745 on the unsearchable riches of Christ, from Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 8. In the meantime, if you want to follow along, you can find us at mediagratii.org slash podcasts and you can sign up for a weekly newsletter. You'll also find there my Word in Season devotions and John Snyder's The Whole Council podcast. If you're appreciating what you're hearing, then we'd love you to subscribe if you would or write a review on your favourite podcast app or, or share this podcast with others so that they can benefit as well. But we really do appreciate you listening. We trust it is a blessing to you. This comes really from the heart of Spurgeon, a man who delights in Christ to know God and to appreciate the benefits and the blessings that the Holy Spirit brings. And I trust that therefore as we work through these things, it is a help to our hearts and a prompt along the way to heaven. Take care and God bless.